Hello everyone, I'm Isan Civico, and I wish you a very warm welcome to a new episode of the Civic Podcast. Now, in this episode, I am joined by Akeri So, which is originally from Myanmar, and of course, as you can see from the title, we will be discussing indeed the actual situation in Myanmar, what happened, dive a bit into the historical context, and try to make some links also with some phenomenons that we are seeing again today in the West, and at the same time, how can the West actually intervene, or should they intervene, in the critical situation that Myanmar is under. So hello again. Uh, so we're here on the conversation with Akeri. We're going to be speaking about Myanmar and the issues that are going around in Myanmar and hopefully maybe turn the conversation a bit more when it comes to military coup and make a link also with Western intervention. But firstly, I would like to know a bit, um, Akeri, please present yourself. Who are you? How, in a nutshell, who is Akeri? Um, well, my name is Akeri. Currently, I'm in Amsterdam and studying here in Amsterdam too. And a bit about my history, so why I am, you know, like the way I am today. Uh, I was born into a family that was very pro-democracy. So in 1988, my parents had to leave Myanmar because they were in favor of democracy and they were in favor of freedom of speech, uh, etc. So um, if they would stay in the country, then they would get killed. So they had to leave. And after a long journey, they end up in, in Thailand. And then that Thailand where they, you know, like uh, settled, it became a refugee camp. And years later, I was born there. And when I turned seven, we moved to the Netherlands. Okay, so basically you grew up in, in the Netherlands for the most part of your of your life. But you were born in, in, yes. a, in a refugee camp in Thailand, correct? Yeah. Were there a lot more people from Myanmar in that refugee camp? Or was it people from everywhere uh, in Asia? No, it was only people from Myanmar. So it was only, you know, like people that got, um, had to leave the country because it was really near the border too. Okay, was it, was it political persecution in general or, or was it maybe religious persecution? Uh, what, what happened uh, during that time in Myanmar to get a bit into the historical context? So um, after the British Empire left the country, uh, the country was supposed to become a federal democratic country, but then uh, the leader, which was Ansan, General Ansan, who was also the founder uh, of the military, he got assassinated. And after that, um, the country was very messy uh, because it was going into the federal di- direction. But then federalism, it just felt like very far away because when the British Empire um, was in the country, they have done propaganda. So in the country, people hated each other, a lot of ethnicities, because it's a country with more than 130 ethnicities. And it was like very, um, not calm at all. It was very messy. There were a lot of, a lot of things going on and we needed a really strong leader, like a really a leader, but our leader got killed. So then the, basically the military took over in 1962, it turned into a dictatorship. And that was, we had our first dictator. And later on, he had like his lucky number, which was uh, number nine. And then uh, what he did was like, um, you know, on a normal day, he said, yeah, let's stop using money with the number nine on it. So a lot of uh, students back then, they didn't save up their money in the banks or whatever. So you save up cash. So from one day to another, that cash, you couldn't use it anymore. So a lot of students couldn't pay, uh, couldn't afford their tuitions anymore. So they started to protest. And when you go out and protest, you get just get killed. So that's what happened in 1988. So a lot of students died. It was a bloodbath, the whole country. And uh, back then, if you would say like certain words, if you would say like Ansan, so that that the founder, the the founder of the military, Ansan, which is also known as the father of Ansan Suji, 
if you would say his name or if you would say uh, democracy or even if you would say the word um, federalism, then you would get, you know, like then they would kidnap you or they would just put you in prison and torture you. So back then you couldn't say you don't have a freedom of speech. Uh, the history got erased. So if you had like books, evidence of the history, then you would get tortured. So nothing was, you know, like it was all fully under control. Like something like you see today with North Korea. So nobody could leave the country. Nobody can enter the country. And, and that was until very, very recent, correct? If, I'm, if I remember correctly, it was in 2011 uh, that in theory democracy got restored and it was Ms. Suu Kyi, I think I, I pronounced it correctly, that, that got elected in 2011. Is, 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 is that correct? Yes, so she went back to, so she, she's the daughter of Han Sen, which was like uh, seen as the hero because he, he led Myanmar to independent country from the British Empire. Um, so when, after he got assassinated, he had children and Aung San Suu Kyi was one of them. Um, after her dad died, uh, her mother got a job in uh, India to be an ambassador of Myanmar. And then she went with her mother. Later on, she studied at Oxford University, married a British man and lived in Oxford. And then in 1988, she got a call that her mom was like on a deathbed. So she had to go back to the country and, you know, like say goodbye to her mother. So she went back and then that was 1988. So she saw students getting killed. So on the 8th of August, so also known as the 88 uprising. So she saw people literally dying on the street and people were with a picture of her dad and they were, they went to her and asked her to help her. Uh, to to get help from her to help the country so she agreed to it like um she would only like stay for few months that was the planning few weeks few months that was not something that she planned for years so they said like help us to get democracy to get the first elections and then she stayed in the country and she she helped the students to get the first elections and that happened but still the military had control over everything and then those few months turn into years and years. And at the end, she ended up like more than 20 years in house arrest. Um, yes, yeah, so then, um, because if, if she wouldn't, you know, like if she wouldn't take that peaceful road, then a lot of people would get killed because her colleagues, they got kidnapped, they got um, tortured, they got in, you know, like tortured in the worst possible ways, in the worst jails on earth. And it, it was her decision to make it like peaceful or not. And peace, it takes time. You can change the system in a few days. And she understood that. So the past five years, we have been seeing the country like um, changing a lot. Maybe not for the elite, but for the normal people, electricity. They got electricity, uh, clean drinking water. The roads were getting better. And that was the past five years. And then in November, there was a new election. Because the elections, they, they had had elections, but in the constitution, in the 2008 constitution, they had like really um, stupid laws that you would say. Because if you are married, if you were married to um, someone foreigner, or if you have children outside of the country, you can't become the president, stuff like that. Or in the parliament, 25% um, of all the seats is taken by the military automatically. So there is not, you know, like 100% democracy. That's already where it goes like very wrong and stinky. Oh, okay. I, I, I did not know that way. That's interesting. So, so the military is not directly a directly institutional body deriving from the government, it's an independent body, basically. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening with the military in, in Myanmar, correct? It's an independent yes, body. So the past few years, it has changed. So first it was like a totalitarian system, but then the past years, they promised democracy. Otherwise people would just go on the street and you know strike and protest for their lives. And uh, the military tried to keep the country, you know, like calm. So they said like, oh, we will give you democracy if you just stay calm. And that is where they started losing their power, all those uh, dictatorship power. But then they said like, it's not the government, so the government, we have like elected government, but the military, they have their own party. So political party, which is the Green Party. And uh, with the elections, they were, you know, like that the Green Party, they have 25% of the parliament, the other seats without 
needing any votes. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It's just, it's, it's just astonishing that that could be a definition of democracy, which it isn't. Uh, in a way, because every single parliamentary seat needs to go through the democratic process of actually getting elected and, and voted in. Uh, but it's interesting. So I think maybe that can give a little bit more context in what's actually happened today, because I tried to quickly uh, brief myself through through the situation, and we shortly discussed it just before, what was happening in Myanmar right now. So so let's get to today then. From what I understood, what happened, there, was the, there were elections, um, and there was a claim that the elections were rigged because of the massive amount of votes uh, Miss Suu Kyi, I hope I, uh, I pronounced it correctly, um, won, basically. And, and, and that was the overall pretext, let's say, or um, reason why there was a military coup. Is that what happened, or do you have a different version of, uh, of what happened? Well, before uh, we go there, so before that, before the elections took place, like I said, like 25% of the seats were taken by the military, the Green Party, uh, mm -hmm. to change any law in, you know, like constitution, if you want to make any changes, whatever, you need more than 75%. Yeah. Yes. And then that's not the only thing. After that, the whole country, like, needs to vote in favor, so a referendum. Whereas more than 75% of the citizens have to go and vote. And only when like more than five, uh, 75% of all the citizens vote in favor of it, then it can be put in the constitution. So it makes it like very impossible. Okay, that's so it's impossible to change the constitution basically. Exactly, yes. So that's the first one. And then in November there were elections and during that election, I mean, the party of Aung San Suu Kyi won. Um, I personally, like, I do have family and friends in the country, and I don't know anyone who voted for the military. Like, it, I only hear people, like, very, you know, like, in favor of NLD, in favor of Aung San Suu Kyi party. But anyhow, they won more with more than 80%. And then on the 1st of February, there were going to be, like, exchange of seats. So everyone gathered in the capital city, which they were going to, you know, like, talk and um, have a cabinet. And start a new government but then on that that was like that was supposed to be on the 1st of february but then in the early morning of february they start kidnapping everyone who is like not from their party so uh San Suu Kyi, she has been you know like gone since the 1st of february her colleagues too and some of her colleagues already have died and we have no we haven't seen her since then so she's gone missing for the past uh, two months, basically. She got kidnapped by the military political party slash military body. Yeah. That's what happened. Okay. And now what's happening now that the military has taken full control of the country and they have curfews uh, implemented. They have, they're not allowing any kind of, uh, let's say, uh, demonstrations, manifestations. Uh, they won't allow any sort of um, contest, let's say, or opposition from the citizens. They want That's the citizens, to, yeah, exactly. So uh, after the 1st of February, people started going on the street to protest, like this is not okay, give us back our government like that we voted for. Because you are saying that we don't have a voice then. If it's democracy, then if it's democracy, even though they took like 25% of the seats, you know, like there's no reason to just kidnap people. And um, yeah, that was not okay. So. People started going on the street, uh, especially students. So even students that are studying here in Europe that got back in the country because of COVID, they just got arrested. And we, you know, like people got shot and they were just shooting on the street. Like, how is that normal? Even children or even children who are not even protesting, they just get killed in their houses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw like around 100 people were killed uh, like a week, uh, yesterday or a week ago, something like that. 100 people were killed like just like that, with no, with no remorse. Um, so, so if I understood correctly, then let's get back to the elections and and how that transition was made. Um, was there a fraud in the elections themselves or not? Is that a possibility? I mean, there was always that possibility. I would say, um, especially from the green side. So they they have been faking the elections. Uh, that is in the history. They have been faking that for years. But in this situation, I don't think there was a fraud because people on the street, they are protesting for the kidnapped government. And that's like basically the whole country. It's like the normal citizens against the military. 
So I don't think there was a fraud. And if there was a fraud, then that would be from the side of the military. So probably more okay. than 80%. Okay. So in any case, uh, the, the vast majority of the country wanted that government uh, to, to stay in power, basically. That's, mm -hmm. yeah, that's something power. we can agree on. Okay, okay. So that's good. But that's good to know. Uh, so we can agree then that uh, Miss An uh, Siu, again, uh, she was the legitimate, let's say, leader of Myanmar. And what basically happened, there was a military coup because they said that there was fraud in the elections and that they didn't like the outcome of the elections. So they decided to kidnap everybody. Uh, they, they're implementing curfews, basically coming into a totalitarian regime, uh, dictatorship, if you will. And then they said that in a year they will call for democratic elections. Is that what's, is that what's happening? Basically, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Okay, so we got that straight. Now let's get into more like the, the interesting part so people know a bit more the, the historical context, what actually happened in Myanmar, people getting killed on the street, people not being allowed to actually protest or to, or to call for fair elections, basically, or to let their legitimate leader go. Um, <clears throat> get into that. You said, to be, you said before that because in Myanmar right now there is there's nothing much that can be done by the citizenry. I mean, they have, you said it, they have no ways of protecting themselves against the military. I mean, we're talking about the military. They have guns, they have weaponry, uh, they have a, a, all sorts of, uh, uh, of organizational structures that actually do allow them to implement this totalitarian regime, and the citizens have nothing to actually defend themselves against. Um, what kind of actions do you think can be taken now, either from the citizens of Myanmar or from external bodies or external entities that might be, for example, the UN, uh, neighboring countries, the West? Um, what do you think would be the solution now or how do you think we should turn the conversation onto this issue? So can you repeat the questions because uh, my internet, I know. Yes, yes, uh, we saw we had a little internet connection. Uh, problems, uh, COVID problems. <laughs> we need to go all the time on Zoom. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so no, no, the question is mainly now, what can be done either on behalf of the Myanmar citizens? Do you think they should actually just lay low and just protect themselves? Or do you think now there should be action from external bodies, like maybe the UN, external countries, neighboring countries, Western countries? Uh, what do you think would be the, the best approach now? Well, um, in the country, they cut off the internet, like most of the internet um, are cut off, like most companies. And in the poor villages, um, you know, like in most places, we don't have that coverage or anything anymore. So already on the first day, they cut off like electricity when they were kidnapping people, electricity cut off the internet. Uh, people in the country didn't even know what's happening, what was happening. And that's something that's currently happening too in the country. So right now, can you still hear me? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you, I can hear you. So right now in the country, a lot of places we don't have, we don't have contact with them. So what can be done for that is like, uh, maybe, you know, like Elon Musk or, uh, Japan or America or whatsoever giving free internet access so that people can you know like know the news and what's happening in their country that's uh, the first thing um, another thing is like how what can the people the citizens in the country do well they have nothing like uh, they are even flying with planes and bombing villages so like you don't have weapons you don't food is already you know like due to COVID people already don't really have a lot of food. So soon, I am afraid that we won't have food anymore in the country. So what can they do? They are pretty, I would say, pretty hopeless at this point from inside of the country. You can't also leave the country and every moment, a military can just come into your house and start shooting. And that has been happening the past few days, past few weeks. And there's nothing you can do against that because there is like no law anymore. So the only hope is from outside of the country and um, the neighboring countries are also not like doing a lot or really helping the citizens. So I really hope that the UN and the EU, they will take actions as soon as possible, you know, like even sanctions, but then really strict sanctions that it will touch the wallets of the military. Do you think that by touching the wallets that would actually restrain the military from doing what they are doing? I mean, the way I'm seeing it now, one of the few options that that are left, let's say, is external military action against the uh, the governing military. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. is that is that a, a viable a viable option or you think they should go more towards a boycott or the or the cutting of resources or try to dry them basically uh economically speaking well if um there is going to be an army that go into the country that will fight for the freedom of the normal people then i would be in favor of it but is that even possible so that's a question like why would a country here in the west send their own army to that country so that's something i wonder but for example with um um law of protecting the citizens so not in the fighting side but like protecting the citizens i'm totally in favor of that but if there was a possibility that we can send in army and interfere with the situation then i would say yes yes please but i don't see that happening like the chances of that happening like very high so what is possible i would say is like boycotting all the businesses that military has so also even not only their names but their nieces names their children's name you know boycotting them so that they don't have money or like freeze all the bank accounts what we are currently seeing is that also they can't pay the soldiers anymore so then those soldiers will stop working because they want money so if we can stop from that happening or when we cut off everything and they can't buy weapons or goods anymore then we make a better chance i think i mean this is a a tricky subject because you asked why would the west intervene in a country that has nothing to do with them basically what are they going to take out of it this was a big question that was happening in the middle east why did the united states go to the middle east why did the uk go to the middle east why do european countries go to the middle east to fight there for various reasons uh, i mean we're not going to get into the religious aspect of the problems in the middle east right now or even the oil that's in the middle east which is something that needs to be said also uh, they do have some natural resources that actually do benefit them too i'm not entirely sure what what would be this in myanmar in this case um another thing we should keep in mind is that if there is military action in myanmar that could be some violent retribution towards the sending countries too in a way but if i'm not mistaken myanmar has no nuclear weapons right they no. don't have any nuclear weaponry okay so it's not the same thing to attack myanmar that it is to attack north korea that was the main reason why basically the west has not actually intervened in north korea yet because they know that kim jong-un actually does have uh, nuclear weapons that that could go south real quick uh, in big issues. So all these kind of diplomatic um, phenomenons, let's say, or dynamics are very, very odd and very difficult to to put in place. Um, but my main, my main question for you is, why would you think then that in some cases external military action is okay? Well, then I'm, I'm not entirely sure about your personal opinion on these things, but I've been speaking about lots of, uh, with lots of people from the Middle East, and most of the time they are completely against external military action. Uh, for some reason, for good reasons and for bad reasons at the same time. Some reasons are that uh, civilians can be caught in the crossfire between external military uh, people, let's say, and the, the standing government or the standing dictators that they are living in, in, in various countries. What, what they did say is that the best way to, to, to answer to this problem, let's say, or to find a solution, is to arm the citizens themselves. Personally, I don't think that's the best option because these citizens, firstly, they have no military experience whatsoever. You cannot just put a gun in their hands and say, go and fight for your freedom. Uh, <laughs> there you go, an AK-47, do whatever you want with it. Uh, I don't see that as a, viable, as a viable option either, which is actually an option that which I've heard quite a bit, saying the military, external military should not actually intervene in this kind of issues. They should arm the citizens and they should give them the tools, let's say, to protect themselves in these kind of situations. Uh, if not, what will happen generally that the West would just take whatever they want and they're just going to come into another dictatorship. Either economic dictatorship, which it, I've been hearing quite a bit, is that countries control countries um, through economics, basically, or through money that they lend them. So they basically have them uh, attached to a rope. Um, so, I mean, there are so many things right now that actually could go wrong in a situation in Myanmar. I don't think generally that arming the citizens is the best option whatsoever, but I do want to see your take. Um, I, I do want to know your your take a bit on why do you think and why do you think people wouldn't want to have external military intervention in their country? Because again, this is your point of view, but I'm not entirely sure if this is actually the point of view of all the citizens in Myanmar. Or do you think the citizens in Myanmar really would like to say, please come and help us uh, chuck this country? I mean, chuck this government out of uh, of power.
they want the army to come in, doesn't matter which army, like from the United Nations, uh, United Nations R2P, um, responsibility to protect, they really want to enter the country, but they're not going to fight, they're going to protect the citizens. But they have been asking, like, is there no way, you know, like that the army can come in, certain army, like from Europe or whatsoever, um, certain countries to help them fight against. Um, they, they do really want that. And also they started the, the federal army in the country. So to fight against the military, because we are at a stage um, where it's a bit hopeless, it feels like, you know, um, I don't, I don't think personally, I disagree with people from the country that want the military to come in the country, like you said, like dictatorship, but then if the West will intervene, what is in for them? Like we have a lot of resources, we have gold, diamonds, you name it, we even have oil, uh, which is, they can, for me, it's okay if they want to work together um, on economical side, but then um, giving the weapons, I think that's, that's a really horrible idea, giving children people, then there is gonna be bloodbath. I don't see the result in that, you know, like then they're gonna mm -hmm. shoot each other and then are we yeah. gonna, like that? I, I mean, don't... no, no, no. I mean, we saw the external military intervention before in various countries in Africa. We saw what happened in Rwanda that when, when the UN tried to go there, it went completely south. It did not work whatsoever. Um, I mean, I think the reluctancy of the West to actually intervene military in lots of countries is actually the bad perception we have of these countries saying they only do but bad things when they go uh, to other countries. Personally, I don't think that's the case. Personally, I think that some interventions are needed. Um, other interventions are not justified. Uh, it can go either way. But I think it also depends on what what kind of government actually does the intervention. We saw this with Donald Trump and with Biden. Biden, first week he was in office, first thing he did was, was start bombing Syria. Uh, with Donald Trump, he killed the general, and then it happened. Do you think this this political, let's say, uh, this polarized West that we have right now, you could pr probably you know this from left to right, any part of the political spectrum and military intervention, do you think there's also a reluctancy in the West in itself to actually go towards other countries uh, and give military intervention in those countries? Or do you think the, the citizens in the West don't really care what the military does outside of their countries? I think that uh, here in the West, we have like the value, you know, like love is a big thing. And I think that we are also very quite naive because um, here, you know, like freedom of speech, human rights, we are so protected in with our rights. We are so protected. So we don't see the darker side of the world, you know, like. Um, I love that you say that. I love that you say that because that's not the perception. That's not the we say, oh, oh, we live, this society is oppressing us. This is so horrible. We can't, we don't have freedom of speech. We don't have this, we don't have that. And honestly, yeah, sorry, keep on, keep on. But I, I really love that, that you said that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, you know, like um, I never missed a meal in my life. So I can talk very easily about these things. But there are people who are literally like don't have parents anymore in just one day, you know, because they lost their parents and, and then your life changes. So I'm not in their shoes in that sense, but because I'm here in the West and I have parents who have been in the war zone and I, I saw the darker, you know, like the ugliest side of humanity, I would say, but also same time I'm living, I have a roof, I have food on the table. So I feel like I, it's like two universes, you know, where we in the West, we, we complain about the internet working so horrible and over there, they have to worry when the police will come into their house and start shooting at them. So um, that's a difference a bit. But um, I don't think that here in the West, we liked when uh, our army goes into a random country and start intervening. But when I'm in that country, there's no hope. And the only hope is like, people want democracy. We don't want to fall into that communist um, dictatorship. And it's like choosing. You know, like even though if America or Europe or, you know, the Western countries will go in and even though if they would dominate with uh, economical power or um, dictatorship in other kind of sense, people can still sleep peacefully. So you are choosing between what is less worse between, you know, like right now they can't sleep in peace. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the lesser of two evils, that's basically uh, exactly. what's been happening for the whole of human history is the lesser of two evils. Which one are we going to choose? In the end, it's still an evil. And I, and I think we'll get to lesser of two evils also and, and speak a bit about uh, Aung San, 
Ogsan Suki. Sorry, I can't really pronounce her, her name correctly, but but the previous or the or the democratic elected the uh, president in itself. But we'll speak about that shortly. And what you were saying about the West is very very interesting indeed, because I mean you've been living here since you were seven. Uh, I've been living in Belgium since I was eleven. I came from Spain originally. I uh, grew up there, and and I have been seeing a lot. Um, a lot of comments about the West in, in bad faith, let's say, saying it's an oppressive society, we have no rights, we can't do anything, we can't do this, we can't do that. And then I, 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 what I usually tell them, go and look in any other country outside of Western society and tell me if they have it better or they have it worse. And when it comes to the term of privilege, just by the fact of living in the West, you're way more, just by the fact of living here, you're way more privileged 10,000 times than any other person from around the globe. It's just basically the number one privilege is geographical privilege in that regard and something that I've been speaking quite quite a lot about on this podcast because we take democracy for granted and generally in the west we do have democratic systems and processes and the state of law um, that actually do allow us to to let's say to be protected by these uh, by these rights and then when they speak about the universal declaration of human rights it's not really universal they they, they, they do not implement it all around the globe and that's something that really needs to get into people's minds that sometimes military intervention is needed. And I don't understand these big movements that we're not just speaking about defund the police, which has been happening quite a bit. Uh, they, I mean, I had, I had a, um, a friend of mine uh, 10, 10 episodes ago, I think, and she was basically making the claim that we don't need the police. Uh, she lives in New York. And she was making the claim, we do not need the police. The police is not something that is needed. Uh, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm guessing, I suppose, she has the same opinion about military uh, yeah. spending. Uh, people saying that we do not need the military. Now, honestly, that's a really bad idea. We, we can speak about the amount of budget that goes into the military. Uh, I mean, the United States spends an, an enormous amount of budget in the military. Some of the countries don't spend as much. So we can, we, we can debate on, on the budget in itself, but countries need the military. And, and you can see this, especially when external countries do need our help uh, in these kind of situations, which honestly, they're just situations of despair where innocent people are getting caught in the crossfires. And this, I'm, I'm gonna make the direct link what's happening in the Middle East. People were criticizing the West for, let's say, try to defend people that are living under the Islamic State, right? They, they, they will then actually try to defend these innocent civilians that are being taken. I mean, I, I have a book here about Malala, right? So Malala, so that was the same story. And, the, and they were criticizing people that want to defend these innocent civilians right there. And I really want people to understand this, especially from, from from your testimony, let's say, from your point of view, saying, let's stop being so naive. Let's stop thinking that military action isn't, I mean, I'm, I wanna say that military action shouldn't be the first um, option. It shouldn't be the, the first option nor the second option. It should be the last option. But sometimes that is actual, that's actually what needs to be done. Because I don't think if now the UN go now to Myanmar and they say, please uh, <laughs> open democratic elections, I'm not sure if they're actually going to accept that outcome. Um, so I'm really actually glad that you brought that up. I want to come now to what we spoke about, the lesser of two evils, right? Because people mainly remember Myanmar probably uh, from the Rohingya crisis that happened a couple of years ago. I'm not entirely sure if it's still ongoing right now, but that was mainly caused. I mean, uh, uh, Miss Sansu Ki, again, I, I'm really bad with pronouncing names, but the previous uh, president that, that got elected, uh, she actually went in front of the Court of Justice, I think it was the International Court of Justice, to well, basically to testify against this homicide, uh, sorry, genocide that happened against uh, against that population there. Can you give it a bit more context uh, on this exactly, what happened a couple of years ago with the Rohingya crisis? And was she, can she be held accountable for what happened? Was she actually at the head of these actions? Or what's the story behind that? So back then, the country became more uh, democratic, more open. So Back in 1988, you know, like that generation, they couldn't even have internet or chocolate was a luxury from the West or Coca-Cola was like more expensive than alcohol, you know, like those things were very from the capitalistic uh, Western countries. So we came from that side of the history. And then uh, lately, like the past 10 years, it has been it has been changing a lot. People, it became open. People, you know, like could travel abroad and could study outside of the country, they uh, started getting access to the internet, which was like very mind blowing, you know, like getting in touch with people outside of the country, learning. And uh, what happens is that for years, the country, even before the military dictatorship, even though the, before the military took over, 
there was already a lot of problems in the country going on, which is very complex. Uh, people, you know, like generation passed on discriminations. So when me, you know, like personally, when I at home, we speak like few languages from the country because my parents are from different ethnicities. But I never felt like one ethnicity was better than the other one. But when I went, I was like 10. I went with my friends and then one day I told them I can speak the national language, which, which was Burmese. You know, it's like the language that is used in the whole country. And then what my friends back then said, told me was that I, they can't hang out with me anymore. They can't play with me anymore because I'm a murderer. That's how deep the hate is in the system. So people associate, you know, like if you speak some certain language, like during the Second World War um, with Germans, you know, like Nazis, but Today, we don't hate someone for speaking uh, German because that is not their generation anymore. But with the Burmese community, we, we see, still see that. So also with the religion, like people are just not educated and they can't be educated because our own history is like being erased. The whole country was shut down and it's only the education that the military provided to us. And you can only control something when it's not united. So the military has been doing things, propaganda in the education system, in the whole whole country so that people start hating each other. So that there won't be a unity because when there is unity, when there is federalism, they, they will fight back and they knew that. So they played that really well. And that is something that started with the British empire. And that's still something that we see here today, nowadays. And with the Orange crisis, it's a country with more than 130 ethnicities. They have totally different cultures. It's not the languages are not even similar like uh, Spanish and French and German, you know, they are quite similar, Italian. But in Myanmar, the languages are totally different, like not even the same kind of words. And you have like ethnicities and those ethnicities, they have been so deep in the propaganda that most of them, you know, like a lot of them, they, they don't trust each other anymore. I mean, how can they? They have been traumatized for generations to generations. Internal hate, like some inner internal hate that comes between these ethnicities in Myanmar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's caused by the military. The military is like funding to, to you know, like that, let that happen. So they, they make up scenes. They just go into villages and burn down the whole village so that that village start hating this kind of person, you know? So it's a whole country. It's a whole country with a lot of hate, but the people, they, they don't know that. They can't know that because the military has been playing the whole chess game. And that's actually really, really sad. That's first the context of the country. So the genocide happening, if the genocide happening with the Rohingyas, um, that's just a bit of the iceberg that we here in the West see, because it's happening all over the whole country with the Korean people. They have been more than 70 years in civil war in the country. And I grew up with them, like I'm not Korean, but I grew up with them and I have seen that from nearby, you know, like they whole villages, they have been burned down. The girls got raped, not even by one person, but like as a product, people get like tortured in the most inhumane ways. So they give that to the next generations and next generations. And it's just a country with a lot of complexity. And we as a West think that we understand that, like we don't. Here I also Europe. think that was highly politicized. That was highly politicized uh, from, from the Rohingyas, especially because if I'm not mistaken, I'm from Muslim confession, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they have a really great um, connections. They are very strong, you know, like uh, they help each other. So Gambia took Myanmar to court. But in the country, there are also Christians that are getting killed. You see what I mean with that? Like, I want to say that. Got killed and... I'm going to quickly cut you there because that's something I said previously that people do not understand right now. Since 2018, the number one persecuted religion in the world was Christianity. Um, and I have a few theories why behind maybe some media outlets, let's say, or some countries will want to extrapolate the issues for one specific community and not for the other. The way I see it that when you, when you let's say, call out a specific kind of violence you need to call it out for every single violence that happens in that same name and not just cherry pick whatever kind of atrocity you want to cherry pick for your own political gain and that is something that has been happening a lot i mean so you agree there was there also been some genocide towards the christian community in myanmar right 
we use the word genocide. I don't think that that was genocide because genocide. Okay, not genocide, but okay, not genocide. Yeah, That's like, another it's just a country with a lot of problems, and you mm -hmm. can't pick one problem. Like what's happening with the Rohingya people? Horrible. That shouldn't be, you know, the case. Like yeah, yeah, of course. Life like horrible. Of course. But there is more in the country happening, and they put her in a position. If she would have said one word wrong, you know, then it's over. Yeah. Forget about democracy. Yeah. It's over. Then they have a reason to uh, have a coup back then and then. And then they have a reason to put her in jail, to put every Democrat in jail, and then we have dictatorship. Like yeah, I mean, they put her in a landmine, basically. In a landmine to wait till she does a, a wrong step, and then it can, uh, they can take her down. But they've been playing this game really, really great, because now we in the West blame Aung San Suu Kyi. You see? Like, we don't, you know, like, we don't even get a lot of news about the country. My friends don't even know what's happening in the country. Like, like it's horrible. Like, the whole country is suffering, not only the Rohingya people. Like, the Rohingya people have been suffering, like, really bad. I'm not denying that fact, but the whole country has been suffering. And she had to choose which one was less evil because she had to think about the whole country as a leader, not just one specific group. And she has been in that position. Like I said, like, I was 10. I told my friends that I could speak one language and then they said to me they were also like around that age you know we were just children we don't know about politics they said to me like i was murdered for being able to speak a certain language the hate is so deep and we in the west don't get that somehow because like you're spanish but you live in germany uh, belgium nobody makes jo jokes about that like me as an asian girl you know like living here in amsterdam and having my friends we we don't have maybe like maybe jokes or racist um, kind of thing, but compared to what's happening in the country, it's it's like you can't compare those two. It's so. I mean, this is astonishing because everything that you ha that you have been explaining between either um, interethnical uh, conflicts, let's say, or, or prejudices or hate in general, or cherry picking a specific issue that's happening somewhere for your own political gain, it's something that we are seeing, or I personally am seeing a lot in the West. I'm seeing that a lot. Cherry picking specific issues and say that is the general law that's happening in the country. When it comes to language, are we even seeing that in Spain? People, people saying, you speak that language, you're not a good person. You should learn this language, you should speak this language. You shouldn't be able to speak your national language here. So, you know, with Catalonia, um, you, you need to speak the Catalan language there also. I'm not going to start generalizing, but a big part of the population in Catalonia does actually think that way. And issues that we take honestly, um, People are not really understanding because they are so complex behind everything that's being portrayed. And I did think, I didn't actually do my research at the time uh, behind uh, uh, the Rohingya people and what's happening there regarding the refugees. Um, the previous episode I made was regarding economic migration and refugees, right? And my main, the main point I was making is that we need to start having the conversations in good faith. Because if you don't have the conversations in good faith, the people that will end up losing are refugees themselves and people that do need to, to seek safe asylum in a specific country. And I think that's happening now with Myanmar. If we don't have the specific conversation or the honest conversation, if we, stop, if, if we don't stop putting um, uh, senseless landmines in front of people just to see when they're gonna, they're gonna say something wrong or they're gonna do something wrong, and then you can crucify them um, just for basically saying, oh, see, I told you that person is a bad person because she did this, completely disregarding all the other things that, that she did do, or I'm saying she, but it could be a, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about a, a hypothetical uh, figure right now. Um, just put landmines in front of people and just wait to, that they do, a, they do something wrong to crucify them. And I think that's a big issue if we, if we don't start having these conversations in good faith, especially what's happening right now in Myanmar. Because you are saying it's not just the Rohingya suffering right now, it's the whole country. And from what I understand, this has been happening for, for quite some time, and namely your family too suffered it uh, 20, 30 years ago uh, in that area. So these things are... Are completely unacceptable and i think i do think honestly that the west should be the pioneers in these conversations because we can we can be proud in a sense that mainly generally the democratic systems here work in a way that we can actually speak about the things we want to speak about that if you now want to criticize uh, the myanmar government here you will not be persecuted for doing so living in 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 the netherlands and people are not understanding that people are not understanding the the importance behind freedom of speech and the importance behind actually being able to contest or to criticize the government in power, which is something, again, we take for granted here in the West. And I think it's just, it's just utterly, firstly, irresponsible and very ungrateful.
on the all kind of privileges that we have here just by living here where we are today. Uh, and the situation in Myanmar just get worse day by day, basically. I mean, that I speak out about these things, you know, like my family in the country are in danger. My friends, yeah, everyone exactly. was so me in danger for me because I'm talking about this and because I'm in favor of democracy. And we here in the West, I don't know, like I've been really feeling like it's our polit politics here. It's not, you know, like people are safe. People go into politics to change things and you are not in life danger, even though you are like very um, radical about something, you are not in life danger. You are protected. You are so well protected. But there are people who go into politics. We got another day. We got a body bag without organs, without teeth. He has been tortured and people don't even get, you know, like paid to do their work. So it's like politicians. It's so different sense. So here we as Western community, we criticize, we watch when they will fall and fill, you know, and then like, oh, we, you know, like we, we act as if we know a situation better. Like, even though we have never missed a meal, we think that we know better than the politicians there. While the politicians there have been um, sacrifices. They had to sacrifice their children because their children's safety, it's not safe for the children to be living there or to be with them. They're, you know, everything. They have to leave that behind, money, everything, like your whole career. Like you could get killed any moment. Like um, with Aung San Suu Kyi, people blame her for a lot of things. But mind you, it's a woman who left her dying husband and her children behind for the country. She didn't need the country, the country needed her. And we in the West, we, we can blame someone like very easily. But like she said, she's not an activist, she's a politician. And she's not waiting for us here in the West to give her some prizes because at the end of the day, it's not the prizes that she cares. It's the people, her colleagues, her the people that really, you know, like have faith in her and her death, like the legacy. And that's what she's working for and not for some prize. And most prizes after the Rohingya uh, crisis, they took the prize away. And they have been criticizing her for being a horrible person, this and that. But now today we see why this happened. You know, like the military wanted her to be in this position because before that they couldn't like, they had to give like free elections. They had to give over like certain part of democracy because she got a lot of media attention here in the West. She got the Nobel Peace Prize. She got like respected by the West. So the military is only scared of the West and of her. And that's why she is still alive. Like that's something to think about, you know, like why is she even still alive? Like they have tried to kill her many times, but if they would kill her, then they wouldn't be able to control the country anymore. And then, then, you know, like if that happens, then we have failed Myanmar again. Like we, we already have failed, like the fact that the coup could have happened, the fact that more than 40 children have died in just few weeks, more than, you know, like hundred people have been missing, dying. We don't know the exact numbers because they cut off the internet and it's still a very poor developing country. So a lot of people don't even have phones or passport, you know? So we don't know even our exact numbers. So in my opinion, we as the West already have failed once and we can't afford to lose, you know, like to fill Myanmar again. I want to finish on, on the last point you made regarding communication and how important communication actually is and the access to the internet, the access to the free press, the access to information. Um, I've, I've been having, we keep seeing, um, we keep hearing a lot about fake news, misinformation, uh, uh, how fact checkers should be state controlled, let's say, right? That's something that I think is a very, very bad idea. Very bad idea. Uh, I actually prefer the fact that there is fake news to give all the hands of information to one single entity or to or one single person, because then that, that could always fall in the hands of corruption. Um, and I don't think, sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you again. Okay, yeah, I, I, there was some issues with connection. Um, so that's a big conversation that's going on right now. What is the best way to organize uh, information, let's say, or, um, or the information output from one specific body? And again, we don't realize the privilege we have of having the free press and having access to all this information. So you can actually do your research. I mean, if people want to get informed about something, all they have to do is use Google. And up until now, we're actually lucky enough to have Google and to be able to find everything we want to find about, about everything in the world, about any single topic we would like to, to think about and, and to look for. And the issue when you give information or the right to information 
uh, to one specific body is that it can happen what's happening now in Myanmar. They can control. I mean, China's doing the same thing. In China, you can't use the same uh, the, the same internet connections uh, that you can use in another country. Um, global access is not it's not real. People in every single country do not have the same access to the same kind of internet. Um, and I think that's something very, very important and why people actually need to be a bit more mindful on why the free press idea, let's say, it's so important, even if there always a risk falling into fake news and misinformation. But then again, in my point of view, I think that the best way to actually combat that is to educate the, pop the, the population or educate the citizenry to, to, to know how to, let's say, um, read information firstly and to follow the money. I always say follow the money. Uh, you see a, a, a press release, you see someone speaking about something, see who is getting funded and what is funding that. And then you will know exactly if there's a political agenda behind it or not. And all sorts of dynamics and all sorts of tools that people can use to actually develop their critical thinking. And that's why I think that the free press is something so important and something we shouldn't take for granted again, because it can be used really, really badly. I mean, you said people in Myanmar aren't even knowing what is happening. And this what was happening even before also uh, during the Second World War. People in Germany, or not even, okay, even the Soviet Union, uh, either in, uh, during Nazi Germany or even in the Soviet Union, people did not know, lots of people did not know what was going on either in the concentration camps or in the gulags. Because mm -hmm. you did not have that free access to the internet. They did not have that. And it seems like a lot of countries are trying to do the same thing. Because through information, you can actually control people. If you control the kind of information they, get, they have access to, you can actually control them fairly easily. And um, mm -hmm. I don't know if, 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 if you have a comment on that exactly on, a, on the free press idea or principle. Well, um, since the small course started, I haven't like, I tried to avoid the news, um, reading it or, you know, like about Myanmar, because the information that we receive here in the West, it's so like black and white. There is no like explanation, like 23,000 uh, prisoners got released. That's the news that we get here, but they don't put in like those um, prisoners got out by a contract. Those are criminals to go into the neighborhoods and to rape children, to set houses, you know, like um, on fire, to burn down houses and to just start, you know, like they, they get drugged, those criminals, and they had to sign papers. We don't get that here in the West. So we only see the surveys and then we think that we know everything about the country and then we judge. So I think that giving like, when in press, like giving both sides, you know, like more con context of the what's really happening in the country, but also like other voice, just not like one mainstream voice, but like different points, like with the ICJ, like you were saying, like with the Rohingya crisis, it's really horrible what happened to the Rohingya. And it, it might be a genocide. Like, I don't know enough about that, if it's genocide or not, and that's a law but also give the other perspective on why Aung San Suu Kyi um, defended the country, why she did that, who she is, and not just like pinpoint, you know, like also right now with the coup. What I'm really seeing is that it's so basic, the news. It's not really, you need to dig deeper because the problems mm -hmm. only when we know the core of the problem, then we can fix yeah. it. Like the military will go away tomorrow, but then will the country re re really receive democracy? And what is actually the demo democracy? Yeah, it, it can't you know, be the democracy of the constitution doesn't innate where you said 25% of parliamentary seats go towards uh, the military. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there are some principles in democracy that can't be one of them. Yeah, so a lot, like, a lot of people here in the West don't understand the pain that people in the country are really feeling. And I think that that is something that we really need to get to start to see. And also right now, um, we, as in the West, we put out a lot of statements uh, that we are very, you know, like worried and very deeply concerned, but then get the facts straight, get the facts straight, because this, we are falling in the trap of the military. The military have been putting down Sensuji like that in that position so that she couldn't do other things. And they have been trying to get the media blaming her and not the military. You see, like what they I did, like, I, I getting attention agree. on her that she yeah i mean so, I yeah, agree. if we can get the media, if we can get the west again on the level that they liked Aung San Suu Kyi and understand why she did what she did you know then i think that democracy will be more achievable 
in a way that not a lot of people are gonna die. Because if we're gonna interfere with the army, uh, if we're gonna give weapons to people in the country, a lot of people will die. And what will we really achieve with that? Will we really achieve democracy with it? If people are just dying, like who's gonna lead the country? And do we want that? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I completely agree. I think firstly, what people need to do is get their facts straight. And then you can speak about the perception of those facts. Uh, get the facts straight. First think what facts are. And then you can speak about what's the best way of actually solving them, or solving the issues at hand. And yeah. that's how you create a dialogue. And mm. right now, a lot of people have been focusing on other problems, you know, like I've been hearing, um, seeing articles too, that the parliament didn't have enough women or that uh, the parliament, it's like old people. And I was like, me as a woman and a young person, that comes later, you know, like global warming is a really big issue too. Like in five years, the capital city will be underwater. But right now we need to get rid of that whole system, that whole military regime. And then we can talk about other problems like racism is an issue that we need to tackle. The Ranger crisis is an issue that we need to tackle. The whole system, we need to tackle it, but we can only tackle those problems when we have true democracy. So right now the priority should be true democracy. And how are we gonna achieve that? I think that should be on the top priority of the politicians, everyone. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a hierarchy of priorities, basically, and you need to know what you what you need to solve first. Uh, you can't attack these issues if, if democracy is not really there, firstly, and that's why we have the privilege of actually speaking about these issues and tackling these issues here in the West, because we have the underlying principles mm -hmm. of of our creation, let's say, that actually do protect yeah. us against these things. And and I really hate the, um, the populism that has been created saying that we live in such an is such an oppressed and oppressive society um and then i just say just look around the world look around the world and see what's happening a bit mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. but yeah i mean i think we're gonna we're, we're going to leave it there again that we have been speaking about so many things and these topics i mean especially about military action i think it's a, it's a very very interesting topic uh that do needs to be addressed in one way i would like to bring in the future maybe a friend of mine that's in the military and see if we can uh, if we can discuss that a little bit further uh, but apart from that, I think we did quite a bit, a good job, let's say, of explaining firstly the historical context, what's happening in Myanmar, our personal perceptions on the issues at hand, and that nothing is black and white, and that free information is very, very important. I don't know what you think, if you have any any uh, final, final statements you would like to make or anything you would like to say. Well, I think that if we as Wes uh, fail again to help Myanmar, you know, then not only, like, the whole country will go down. Like, we cared a lot about the Rohingya issue. So like, if we're gonna let the country go on like this, the things that happened to the Rohingya, it will be worse. Like it will be 10 times worse than we have seen, be seeing, you know? So we really need to act to, we really need to act. And even though if you don't like Aung San Suu Kyi, even though you blame her, she's 75, she needs to, you know, like she should take her rest. So yeah, like, she'll be gone soon. Yeah. yeah, so like forget about her. It's the country, it's a system that we need to help. And the people in the country, are really at this point hopeless and if we don't speak up for them then the light will you know like turn off in the country and it's just about time when in the west those people need to run away and then we will have more refugees and that is a issue here in europe too so if you don't want that help the country to get better and then i really see like a really bright future too like Myanmar is full with resources too so if you you know, like if you interfere or whatever, you know, we have resources. <laughs> you, you can bribe them. You can bribe them. Say, come on, guys, please help us. And you can get a few diamonds on your way. So that's fine. So I really hope that the West will take actions as soon as possible. Yeah, I hope so too. And I, and, and I do think people need to be a little bit more mindful when it comes to Western intervention, because sometimes it is justified. We can... we. we we can call out when atrocious actions have been committed by the West and other countries. That's fine. But that shouldn't mean we should put every single situation in one same, in one same box and judge every single situation in the same way. I think every situation should be um, seen in, independently and individually in comparison to another because not two situations are the same, right, uh, completely. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, the Burmese majority of the Burmese people do want intervention because they don't see other, you know, like, hope anymore people are literally dying and if innocent children are getting killed for being in their houses then i think that we it's everyone's problem it's just not a problem of people living in the country that's yeah, about everyone those children like a five year old what can a five years old do wrong you know so yeah I, we should I, not i completely agree 
I completely agree. It's completely unacceptable that people are being killed in their homes or even in their country uh, or that being killed. I mean, it's just basically it's just unacceptable that people are being killed uh, regardless of the situation. Yeah, we have the privilege to do something. So I think that we really should take actions. And I, yeah, I do agree. So anyone, if you if you listen to this and you're in an institution, if you work for the council, if you work for the commission, just try and speak speak up about this issue and try to move it a bit more institutional action, let's say, and also from the general population to just to make either call it out or do your research about it and speak about it around you. Because I do think in the end, I mean, look, look, look what happened when when something happens in in, in Maghreb or in the Middle East, uh, people aren't don't really hesitate to start calling for boycotts. Let's do the same thing for Myanmar. Let's do the same thing for Asian countries. Let's do the same thing for the countries that actually do need the, the, the help of the West, let's say, to, uh, to resolve their issues uh, in one way or another, peaceful or non-peaceful. But yes, do you have any other final statements before we, we cut? I think I'm, I'm doing fine, I guess. Um, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, like help, please help Myanmar in any way you can. That would, that would mean a lot. Like, um, I'm speaking for the country when I say this. We really need help. Okay, yeah. Thank you very much again for you speaking up about these things. I think it's very, very, I mean, it's very important, especially. And I do like going into foreign policy things and uh, things that are happening outside of, of, of the West. But in any case, again, if you are interested in these topics, please just do your research, try and look a bit more into these issues. And that's pretty much it. We're going to leave it here. Again, I'm Ismail Pai Sivika, and I was joined today by Akari to speak about the Myanmar conflict. Uh, and this was, again, the Civic Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time.